Welcome back to See, Hear, Feel. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Karen Lefty-Spencer. Dr. Karen Lefty-Spencer has a MA and a PhD. She's a professor of health and behavioral sciences at the University of Colorado, Denver. She researches medical decision-making, health disparities, and patient-provider relationships. She received her BA in sociology and anthropology from Gustavus Adolphus College in 1993 and her MA and PhD in sociology from Indiana University in 1995 and then in 2000. She was recently quoted in a New York Times article titled, Women Are Calling Out, quote, Medical Gaslighting, unquote. The link to that article is in the show notes and also a link to one of her very well-written articles. She has a very nice figure. It's titled Social Foundations of Healthcare Inequality and Treatment Bias. Welcome to Karen. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Before we jump into the more meaty questions, I was hoping you might be able to tell me something about yourself since I actually don't know you and you don't know me. Our conversation before we started recording is reminding me about how I went into college. I was completely pre-med. I completely wanted to be a doctor. And at some point I got thrown into a sociology class and I resisted. I just didn't think that was legit at all. I was a real science girl. And then it became something that I really loved. And I started seeing these aspects of things that were going on within medicine that I could have a role in without being a physician. So that is kind of where I came from originally and have been interested in health and social systems sort of ever since. That's awesome. I love that answer because that helps me segue right into the questions that I have for you. Karen and I don't know each other. And I heard of her work through this New York Times article about this so-called concept of medical gaslighting, which is something that I only started hearing about more recently. And it's a term being used to encompass bias and some degree of misdiagnosis that patients encounter. This is a quote from your article. Physicians are often working under difficult conditions that make it easy to make mistakes and oversights. It's like a gauntlet of problematic systems and processes that invite bias. I was hoping you might be able to talk about that quote a little bit. First of all, I'll just say the term medical gaslighting is something that is not my term. <laughs> and it's not a term I've seen used in research on this area. So I think it's something that's coming from social media. It's coming from patients and activist communities to sort of put a label on what they see happening. Gaslighting is a very intentional process. Like when we think about where that term comes from, it usually means purposely messing with someone's idea of what reality is. That does a disservice to a lot of well-intentioned providers who are out there just sort of doing their best and, and trying to help patients, not hurt them. That said, I think about this as sort of layers of an onion. This squares up with the figure that you have from the article. And at the center, you sort of have doctors and patients. And often we talk about implicit bias and different ways that people think cognitively. And that's completely true. And that's all there. Also, people are embedded in these systems that also influence what's happening in that doctor-patient interaction. And so two, I think, really important things are one is like our history of our medical knowledge has been really biased. Our information is very much based on white men historically. We explicitly excluded women from medical research for a long time. Like you couldn't be in a clinical trial because maybe you would be pregnant and it would be dangerous to the fetus. So we just accumulated this whole edifice of medical knowledge that's really based on white men, male animals, male cells, etc. And that gets baked into our medical education and training at many 
levels. Another layer to the onion that I think is really important is the pressures that are on providers that you don't have a lot of time to see patients. You're expected to juggle a lot of information, electronic medical records, all of these paper trails. And you're supposed to do it in a short period of time in order to get paid, in order to move forward, in order for insurance to kick in. And I think all of those systems really put pressures on providers to come up with certain and definitive diagnoses when maybe they're a little bit uncertain. Maybe it might warrant a little bit more follow-up, but the system doesn't, it rewards certainty and it rewards moving forward and less so um, uncertainty. Yes. You say medical organizations are not value-neutral spaces, but rather spaces in which professionals apply cultural knowledge and cognitive shortcuts, much as they do in lay settings. And I appreciated that quote because so far, for anyone who's been listening into the podcast, we have covered cognitive shortcuts. We talked about metacognition and critical thinking and some of the biases that are prevalent, like premature closure and search satisfying. I appreciate that really a lot of what we talk about and think about in terms of these biases and then system factors that are outside of it apply in really probably almost any setting. All sorts of settings. We're always relying on cognitive schemas and these mental frameworks to fill in gaps. So if you think about it, like a An example I'll give to my students, if you imagine being in a classroom, I'll say, you've never been in this exact classroom with this person next to you and sitting in this chair and the sun coming in the window this way and me saying these things right now. You've never been in this exact situation before, but you're not confused. You know you're in a classroom because you rely on these cognitive schemas. And if the details are slightly different, that doesn't phase you. You still apply kind of this pattern recognition to what you're doing. So we're doing that all the time. If you didn't do that, you would be walking around completely confused. Every time you encountered something that was new, you would be confused. So we rely on this all the time. In your written form, you say mental categories exist for events, roles, people, etc., And especially in situations where there is missing information, schematic inference is used to fill in missing information based on characteristics of the schema for which information is already available. And you just described, oh, like even when you're in a classroom, you're already using a schema. So even if the light is hitting a different way or if it's a cloudy day now and someone else is sitting next to you, you just have a general idea of, oh, it's a classroom. And then say the uncertainty, if someone new is sitting next to me, say I'm shy or I still have the scheme of, oh, well, I'm still in a classroom and it's just, I'll just categorize, it's just another student sitting next to me. Take away that uncertainty. I don't know this person, but this person's a student. I categorize the student and I categorize my experience as I'm in the classroom. Is all of that correct? That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Then your next couple sentences connect how when we're using schemas, In uncertainty, you have a line here where it says physicians may invoke such schematic processing to fill in missing information, which may mean that stigmatizing cues have a greater impact on decision making. As a physician, I totally think that that statement is true. And I appreciate what you just said about gaslighting being the wrong term, because I would never want to say that I'm purposefully, deliberately gaslighting a patient. When things are uncertain is when those other biases are just sort of invited in because they help you fill gaps and referring back to those cognitive schemas. 
right? So if you're feeling a little uncertain, it invites bias because that's how we're going to make sense of things. Doctors are just like the rest of us when we're tired and hungry or cognitively overloaded trying to do too many things at one time, our decision making suffers. And that matters if that's, you know, you're having a discussion with your spouse or your child or your patient. Those same things matter in lay circumstances or in these kind of healthcare settings. That's important. I'm fascinated by the concept of Anders Ericsson's deliberate practice. That's also why this section of your article on schemas and mental categories fascinates me because in deliberate practice, according to Dr. Erickson, you're trying to create mental representations. For me, in a visual specialty, what a skin disease looks like on someone's body or under the microscope. So is that kind of also what you're saying here, that these mental categories and schemas, which I think in deliberate practice, we're trying to create these strong schemas, mental categories, mental representations. They're, they're not necessarily bad. Is that correct? They're not necessarily bad. And they're, again, how we make decisions. In that broader discussion, I think just recognizing that goes hand in hand with the deliberate practice and trying to create a diverse set of mental schemas is huge. But also, it's a little bit of a recipe to put a lot on doctors because people are always going to be wrestling then with epidemiologic base rates of a condition too. Right. right. And so when something is improbable from the perspective of the decision maker, then these other kinds of characteristics can come into play. Certain diseases are definitely more represented in a certain population. Base rates are higher. For example, skin cancer is much higher in very fair-skinned people. That doesn't mean that I'm Asian. It doesn't mean that someone Asian can't get skin cancer. It's just a lower base rate. It's possible. And it's wrong to think that someone of my ethnicity can't get skin cancer because that would be wrong. The base rates we use may be incorrect because they're based on research or studies that we're only looking at say, a white male population. Sometimes the base rates are true. All of this becomes hard. It's difficult. It's not easy. Oh, it's definitely not easy. And I don't think there's a magic answer for that. But in terms of the base rates, the key thing is where possible to not let those priors overwhelm the presenting case in front of you. A classic example you hear about bias in medical decision-making is like women getting missed for heart attacks. I did a study on that. We hired actors to depict patients and then we filmed them. So we had videos that we then went and showed to providers and asked them to make decisions about what was going on with the patient. So all of the actors were reading the exact same script. They were all presenting the same signs and symptoms, and they all should have been at the threshold of triggering a CHD diagnosis. But then we could have male and female and 55-year-olds and 75-year-olds and all the different combinations. So we had like 16 different combinations. You show them to doctors. All of them should trigger a CHD diagnosis. And what you see is that they are less certain of a CHD diagnosis for women and especially younger women. But then we would turn on the tape recorder and ask them, like, walk me through your decision making. And I get these transcripts back from the field and something I, a, a few of them said, this is just, this scenario is just like that Netter encyclopedia that I learned in medical school. And I was like, what is the Netter encyclopedia? And I go and look it up and I turn to the entry for angina and there is a full page 
eight by 10 color illustration of an older white man, silver haired, coming out of a restaurant into the blustery cold and snow and like clutching his chest. And that's the picture that goes with angina. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw that and I was completely blown away. Like, well, then are we surprised that when doctors see women presenting with similar symptoms, they're less certain. So if your diagnostic certainty, like maybe you have a differential diagnosis and for men, you're like, well, it could be CHD and it could be a GI condition. But for women, you have those two. And then you also enter in depression and anxiety. Well, your diagnostic certainty lowers the more different conditions you're considering. Right. And diagnostic certainty is very predictive of taking action on any of those. Coronary heart disease example. So all of the cases should have had all the signs and symptoms to be sufficient to get to a coronary heart disease diagnosis. Um, But for the women, they felt like that was, that was atypical. And so they didn't, they were less certain about just making that diagnosis and taking treatment action based on that. And so I think that formula is in play in a lot of places. And I would imagine in dermatology too, like if you have a base, right, you kind of have this idea of where it's prevalent and where it's not, but the danger is in letting that unlikely situation become impossible in the view of the provider. Any final thoughts? I always have really enjoyed physicians who have sort of this social science bent and these interests and who really care about these issues. So I think that's every time I meet someone like you in the medical field, I think that's such a wonderful addition to what's going on. And I'm always excited to hear doctors engaging kind of some of these processes and just thinking about them. You guys are doing really hard, hard, hard work. Well, thank you. I think you're doing important work as well. So I appreciate it. Thanks so much for spending time today with me. My pleasure. Thanks for calling. 